today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. Uh, It's printed in your bulletin, so you can follow along as I read it aloud. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's spend a moment and pray together before, uh, before we get into the message. Let's pray. Uh, God, truly, this is a precious word and perhaps one of the most touching prayers from the Apostle Paul that we read in all of Scripture. And we know it's a prayer that uh, we need as well for us. And as we come and take a look at this prayer and see the things that the Apostle Paul was praying for, we, we want to simultaneously pray these things for our own hearts. We want you to speak to our own hearts. We want you to help us to see how important it is to know the love of Christ today as we hear uh, the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, <clears throat> we have been spending the fall looking at prayers in the Bible, and the reason we're doing this is because prayer is an essential part of who we are if you, you identify yourself as a Christian. Prayer is an essential part of your life, but prayer is an essential part of church community life, and there is a spiritual aspect that is not always seen but is nevertheless incredibly important. And we've been trying to look at prayers in the Bible this fall because we want to spur our our hearts uh, to pray more, to gather together as a church and to pray more. Uh, Because without prayer, I don't think, uh, quite honestly, I don't think we're going to get very far as a church. You know, prayer is probably a little bit like gasoline for a car. Uh, We might have uh, the right structure. We might have, uh, you know, the right pieces for a vehicle to move. But, you know, without gasoline, the car is not going to go anywhere, right? Uh, That doesn't mean the only thing we need is gasoline. You you need things like an engine. You need like a steering wheel. You need tires and so forth. But, you know, without gasoline, uh, there's no power. And so what I'm trying to urge the church to do is uh, make prayer a priority in your life because as put together as maybe your personal lives are, that you have, oh, the the family piece, you have the career piece, or whatever the the world tells us we ultimately need— Uh, I think Scripture tells us uh, something very different in terms of what we ultimately need. And what we ultimately need is to know Christ, to know His love, and we need the power of the Holy Spirit to help us move. And that happens by way of prayer. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a very important prayer in the letter to the Ephesians written by the Apostle Paul. And where I want to start is I want us to reflect a little bit on this idea of need. Okay? Need. There are basic material things that Uh, All human beings need in order to survive, right? Uh, We need food, we need water, we need shelter to keep us safe and to keep us secure from outside threats. And there are also other things that are non-material in nature that we probably need. We need things like friendship. We need things like meaning. We need things like purpose. We need hope. We need joy. These are non-material things that I also think all human beings need. 
And in the final analysis, some of these non-material needs are probably far more important than what we might consider to be needs in our lives, uh, especially when it comes to material things. But sometimes we try to get these non-material needs through material avenues. So we say things like, I need to buy some new clothes uh, because I don't have anything to wear. Uh, I need to check out this new restaurant because it's great at getting these great reviews. Uh, I need to, to find somebody to get married to. Uh, I need to get this promotion and I need a bigger salary and I need to make more money. Uh, I need this apartment. I need to live in this neighborhood. Whatever it is. Uh, we oftentimes use this word need when at the end of the day, it is not actually what we truly need in our hearts, but I think it's reflective of perhaps a pursuit of trying to get something that we need that is non-material in nature. And what we really mean is I want this, not I need this. But if we do mean I need this, we're saying I need this because I think it will give me something that I need that is non-material. I need love. I need meaning. I need purpose. I need security. I need comfort. I need peace. I need hope. I need joy. And we try to find these things through these avenues. You know, in the Christian story, God is our creator, and therefore what that means is we are created beings. We are derivative beings. We are derived from God. That's why we are created in the image of God. And what that means is we are dependent upon someone else. And we need humility to remember that we are created beings, which is why humility is such an important virtue to have in the Christian faith. Because if we are created beings, then it means we are finite, we are limited in a whole wide range of things. And we are especially limited, I think, in the area of knowledge. Sure, we have a lot of knowledge, but I think we have a limited amount of knowledge. But here's what I think. Here's my observation, and I could be wrong, of course. I do think we tend to feel much more confident in what we know uh, than we ought to. We tend to feel much more confident in our knowledge than probably prior generations. I think a large reason for that is because we have so much access to information on the internet. Uh, If you have a question, you Google something. If you have a question, you look up a TED Talk or you you just learn all these things. Uh, Western culture in particular tends to be a very educated culture and maybe you have multiple degrees. And so uh, we, we think that we know a lot and I think we tend to be a little bit overconfident in thinking we know what we need. Uh, <clears throat> again, just a personal observation. I might be wrong, and it might, you know, it might be me. It might not be other people, but you know, when I talk to people and maybe when I attempt to give a little bit of counsel, people oftentimes come to me thinking what they, they already know what they need from me. They already know what they need me to say to them. Uh, they, they have a certain problem, and it's like, yeah, I know how to solve it. I know what I need. I know what you should say to me, right? And uh, that's kind of the, the mentality a lot of people have. And I think sometimes we need a little bit of humility and really s- slow down and ask ourselves, how do you know, right? How do we know what we need? We can oftentimes see the direct consequences of certain decisions that we make. But guess what? We don't always see the, the unintended consequences. We don't see the secondary and the third consequences because our knowledge is finite. We make a decision to move somewhere, to marry a certain person, to get a certain job, and we think we know it's the right decision for us, but how do we really know at the end of the day? Uh, There's a children's book that I read growing up, and I asked a couple people if they they know this book, and almost everybody said no, so I guess it's a book that only I know. So let me tell you the story about this children's book. It's a children's book called The King, the Mice, and the Cheese. Sound familiar? No. Nobody knows it. All right. 
It's out of print. That's probably why nobody knows it. Well, <clears throat> uh, this book is basically about a king, and he has a problem with some mice in his castle or in his kingdom. Uh, I might get the details messed up because I don't have the book, and it was a long time ago. But anyway, the gist of it goes like this. He has a problem because he has some mice, and they're eating his cheese. And so he consults some wise men, and he says, how do I get rid of these mice? They're eating up all my cheese. And these wise men say, get a cat. He gets a cat, and the cat chases out the mice. But guess what? Now he has a cat problem, and the cat are messing up his home. So he goes to the wise man and says, what do I do about my cat problem? And the wise men say, go get a dog. So he gets a dog. And all these dogs come, and then they make a mess of his castle. And he goes to the wise man and he says, I have a dog problem, right? On and on it goes until eventually he gets to an elephant, right? And uh, he says to the wise man, I have a problem with elephants. How do I get rid of these elephants? And the wise men say, get some mice, and the mice will get rid of the elephants. So it's kind of this circular story. He ends up right where he is in the beginning. And, uh, you know, the moral of the story is actually, right, make a deal with the mice and share the cheese. That's the moral of the story. But what my takeaway, at least for the application of this sermon, is, you know, if you get rid of one problem or if you address one problem in a certain way, sometimes there are unintended consequences to that problem that you can't really anticipate, right? I read a story about the population of vultures in India, and uh, vultures in India, the population dropped from about 40 million to 100,000. That's a lot of vultures that died. And you know the reason why that happened? It happened because farmers would give these anti-inflammatory drugs to cattle that were sick. And you know in India, uh, cows are primarily used for dairy, and people in India, they don't eat the the cow meat as, uh, as much as people in the West. And so when cows die, basically their carcasses are left for scavengers to come and eat. Well, these vultures, they would come down, they would scavenge uh, meals from these cows, they would eat these cows that were administered this particular anti-inflammatory drug, and therefore they would consume this anti-inflammatory drug, and when they did, their livers failed, and they died. And people were like, why are all these vultures uh, dying all of a sudden? And nobody knew why. But you see, they were trying to solve one problem with sick cattle, and the unintended consequences, you had all these vultures that died. That happens all the time in life. You know why government policies are so difficult? Because you create a policy to solve one problem, and then that policy leads to all these unintended consequences and all these other problems. I think life is full of these kinds of scenarios and these situations. And we think we need something to happen in our lives. We think we need something in our lives. But how do we really know what we need? Our, our knowledge is finite. We make the best decisions that we can, and sometimes there's unintended consequences to these things. And I think it's supposed to be that way because, again, we're created beings. We're not supposed to know everything. And as created beings, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to depend upon one who does know everything and lean upon his knowledge in order to understand what it is that we ourselves truly need. Paul's prayer here, I think, is one of the most beautiful and instructive prayers because what he asks God for, for the Ephesian church, reflects ultimately what they need and ultimately what we need in our lives. I have this old counseling professor, and, uh, you know, I'm thinking about him because uh, he just found out he has stage 4 cancer, so it's not a very good prognosis. But an old counseling professor of mine, uh, he wrote this little article on prayer requests, and I may have sent it out to some of you. And he says this, you know, when people share uh, requests for prayer, uh, most of the time what people share are uh, circumstantial things like, you know, pray for my health, pray for my finances, pray that I find a job, and so forth. 
And even though these are very legitimate prayers to pray, and we ought to be praying these things, he also notes this is a very minor emphasis when you look at how people in the Bible pray. And as we've gone through this series, I I hope you've seen that as well. Very little of the prayers we've looked at have been about just very surface-level circumstantial things. You see, the problem with these kinds of prayer requests is they don't ultimately address what we really need deep down at the level of the heart. Uh, We never end up praying for things that are at the level of the heart. So when someone asks, how can I pray for you? Uh, Instead of saying, well, you know, work's been really tough. Can you just pray for me uh, for my work situation? Imagine someone responds like this. You know, I've had a lot on my mind lately, and I've been really inattentive and really irritable to those who are close to me. And uh, please pray for me that I will just awake and turn from my preoccupation with work, the stresses of work, with pressures, with recreations, with my health problems or money. Pray that I will take refuge in God when the pressure is on. And we don't oftentimes request prayer in that way, which is probably why many of us, we might know each other in a very surface-level way and not at the level of the heart. And when we pray in that way, what we do is we really identify our heart's true need, right? Does our heart truly need that our work situation become smoother? At the end of the day, that's not our most basic and central need. Our need is not simply better circumstances, but our deepest need is at the level of the heart. It is to know God, to know his love, to believe in his promises. And when we can pray these kinds of prayers, then guess what? We begin to identify that which we truly need, and perhaps prayers will have a more uh, formative impact in shaping how we view the world, how we view ourselves, and how we view our lives in faith. If you look at this passage, that seems to be what Paul is praying for in this prayer. You see, Paul, he could have prayed for all kinds of circumstantial things. You know, the church had a couple of issues with different, um, you know, different circumstances. One of the issues that the, the Ephesian church had is there's, there's a lot of division between the Jews and the Gentiles. But he knows the only way to bring the body of Christ together to reconcile this division, to bring greater unity, it has to take place at the level of the heart. And so what does he pray for? What is it that the church truly needs? He prays for four things, and they kind of function like like a staircase. And that one prayer, the first leads to the second, which leads to the third, which leads to the final prayer. And what are these steps if you look in the passage? First, he prays that they would be strengthened with power through the Spirit, so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith, so that they may have strength to comprehend and know the love of Christ, so that they may be filled with the fullness of God. Paul is known for a lot of run-on sentences, and this is a run-on sentence, but if you follow the logic of his prayer, he is ultimately praying that the Ephesian church would be filled with the fullness of God. Because that's ultimately what we need at the end of the day. Now, I want you to also notice this. When he prays for things like that they would know the love of Christ, what they would be filled with the fullness of God, who is he praying for in this prayer? He's not praying for the non-believer. He's praying for the church. He's praying for the Ephesian church. He's praying that they would know the love of Christ and be filled with the fullness of God. And you might say, well, Don't believers already know the love of Christ? Aren't believers already filled with the fullness of God? Why, if so, why is he praying for that for the Ephesian church? And the answer is this. He's not praying that they would intellectually know these things, 
but he is praying that their knowledge would reach the level of experience, that they would experience these things. And you can see that with phrases like your inner being and in your hearts. He wants them to know the love of Christ and the fullness of God in the deepest recesses of who they are, to experience it. There's a, a great scene in Goodwill Hunting where Robin Williams' character, right, Sean, he's talking to Matt Damon's character, Will. And uh, I think it's probably one of the more famous scenes in Goodwill Hunting. And it takes place after Will says something about, you know, Sean's deceased wife. And it ends with Sean having his hand around, right, Will's throat and saying, right, don't, don't talk about my wife or something like that. And then uh, in the meeting that they have after, he tells him, you know, what you said really shook me. It, it made me stay up all night until I realized something. And I had this thought, and then I slept like a baby, and I stopped thinking about you from that point. And then he goes on to explain what that realization was, and he says this, if I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny of every art book ever written. But I'll bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling. And then he goes on to say, I'd ask you about love. You'd probably quote me a sonnet, but you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable. Known someone that could level you with her eyes, feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you, who could rescue you from the depths of hell. And he is making a distinction here that I think Paul's making as well. You see, this character, Will Hunting, he, he is a genius and he has read a lot of books. He has memorized a lot of books. He has a lot of information in his head and he can talk uh, very intelligibly and in in intelligently about a variety of topics. But you know what Robin Williams' character, Sean, basically realized? Even though he has a lot of knowledge, he knows nothing about life and the things that make life worth living. He knows nothing experientially about love. He knows nothing experientially about beauty because he's been in this one city, stuck to his books for his entire life. You see, Paul is making that kind of distinction. You might know the love of Christ because you know doctrine, because you grew up in the church, because uh, you understand from an intellectual point of view what the cross means. So you might know the love of Christ, but do you really know it from the level of experience? He's praying that this Ephesian church, that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that they would be filled with the fullness of God. He is praying that they would experience the love of Christ to such a degree that they would be filled with the fullness of God. That's what Paul's praying for. Now, the question for us is this. How does that happen? Well, let's look at what Paul's praying. First, he says, it happens by the power of the Spirit. Right? He's praying that they would be filled with the Spirit of God. Now, there's a scholar named Gordon Fee, and uh, he wrote a book on the Holy Spirit, and he says uh, the Holy Spirit is three things. The Holy Spirit is personal, the Holy Spirit is present, and the Holy Spirit is powerful. And if we don't know the person of the Holy Spirit in three ways, then really there's probably something that's going to be missing in terms of how we relate to God and how we uh, interact with God. Uh, if you remember, we started this series doing, uh, talking about the fact that I think we needed more conviction in the area of power, that God is powerful. And the reason I, I said that is because at least uh, in our church and at least from the, I guess, the tradition we come from, I think we do have an easier time understanding that the Spirit is personal and the Spirit is present. I am not so sure we understand that the Spirit is a power. Okay? Now, how does the Spirit demonstrate His power 
uh, at least in this prayer, the Spirit demonstrates His power by making the love of God experientially real for us. You see, if we want more than intellectual knowledge, but a kind of knowledge that actually penetrates the inner being, then we need a power that is actually external of us. Uh, we see that dynamic, I think, in other areas of life, especially uh, areas of life that displays beauty, right? Uh, you know, when I listen to music and I hear the instruments and I hear the composition, I hear the melody, I hear the, the rhythm and the beat, I hear the lyrics, uh, it has a power to, to do something to me, to affect me. Uh, it's more than simply understanding music theory and understanding the technical aspects of the music, but it's subjectively experiencing the beauty of the entire song. Uh, you remember that part in the movie, I'm, I guess I'm quoting a lot of movies today, you remember that part in the movie uh, Shawshank Redemption, uh, you know, where the character Andy Dufresne, he, he gets a shipment because he's trying to build a library, and part of that shipment he receives is a record player with an opera record, and then what he does in prison, uh, he locks the door, he takes out that record, he puts the record on, he turns on the PA system, and he begins to blast this beautiful opera music on the loudspeaker so everybody in the prison can hear it. And I think the most effective part of that scene is you, you see the faces of the people as they're listening to this music, and they're kind of affected by it. They're in awe of it, and they're just listening to the music because there is such beauty in it. And, you know, he gets in trouble. He gets a month in solitary confinement for that. And when he comes out, what, he, what does he say? He says, that was the easiest time I ever did. Why? Because he had the music in his head. That is the power of beauty, friends. Beauty has a power to give us hope and strength, meaning and purpose, even in the midst of hard and difficult circumstances. And that kind of experience never comes from within us. Those kind of experiences always happen because there is something powerful taking place outside of us. Paul is praying for that power when he prays for the Spirit of God to make the love of Christ experientially real for the Ephesian church. And that's why prayer is such an important thing because it's not ultimately not something that we control. It's not something that we can will. It's not we, like we can say, uh, let me will myself to be awe in awe of this kind of beauty, but it's something that happens to us from the outside. Now, I want you to also notice this. Notice the role of co- that community has in this prayer. If you look at verse 18, it says that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. Now, there's that little phrase, with all the saints, that I want you to focus on. And all the, um, when it talks about with the saints, basically it's talking about with other Christian believers. And it's interesting that Paul would say that the love of Christ is something that we comprehend with the saints, with other believers. Comprehend may not be the best translation here, but maybe the right translation is more of a sense of apprehend or grasp. Something that you grasp you grasp the love of God in the context of Christian community. Uh, that's a little bit different than how I think modern people think about spirituality or modern people think about how you experience God because you often hear people say, I want to be spiritual, but I'm not religious. And I think what that, what comes, what that comes down to is this. I want a personal relationship with God, but I want it apart from any kind of wider community, apart from any kind of institution. And if anything, community life is something that is optional to my faith uh, because although it can enhance my experience with God, what's really important is my own individual spirituality. Tons of people think like that in today's world. That's not what Paul seems to think here. 
The love of Christ is actually something that you grasp with others in the context of community. And if you read the passage that comes before this, Paul goes so far as to say that the church reveals the manifold wisdom of God. It's through the church that God's wisdom is ultimately revealed. And we know God, we know his wisdom, we know his love in the context of community. Even though the church is messed up, even though the church is dysfunctional, in this case the church is divided between Jew and Gentile, even though there are a lot of things about the church that are wrong, the church becomes the avenue by which God reveals his character. That's why community life is not some optional add-on, but it is one of the main ways through which people are able to grasp the love of God in Christ. Now, if you look at how the love of God is described, Paul uses very poetic language. He's praying that we might know the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God. Now, when something is really big, for example, like a building, you probably need other people to really grasp the breadth and length and height and depth of something, right? If you have this huge building and you're just one person, it's going to be hard to know that huge building comprehensively without other people. Uh, If you're a fan of museums, if you're a fan of art, imagine visiting the Met for a single day. You probably will not get the true fullness of the Met. You might get a taste of its beauty uh, through the exhibits that you visit, but you won't really understand the fullness of what the Met has to offer. But if you rely on a community, I mean, this is what the internet is, right? You read what other people's experiences are. But if you have about 5, 10, 100 other people who visit the Met and explore all the different aspects of the museum, and then you get together and you share about it, you discuss it, you actually get a better grasp of the entirety of the Met. You know, the love of Christ, what's uh, brilliant about it, it's such a simple concept, but it's so big right? It is so big. And how can a single person living on an island really grasp something that is so big? You need community to really grasp the fullness of the love of Christ. Someone who experiences the love of Christ and maybe they come from a broken family, they're going to understand the love of Christ from a particular angle than someone who experiences the love of Christ in the context of uh, just searching for greater meaning and purpose in their lives. These two people get together, they share their various angles about how the love of Christ has affected them and changed them, and they get a fuller grasp of the love of Christ, right? Add to that a person who has endured a life of suffering. Add to that a person who has, uh, you know, gone through uh, many experiences, maybe globally, maybe as as an exile, maybe as an immigrant, maybe as a prisoner, whatever the life experience is, you gather all these people into one community talking about how the love of Christ shaped them, and guess what? Everybody in that community is affected, and they are able to grasp the fullness of the love of Christ. There's a writer named uh, uh, Joni Erickson Tata, and... Uh, you know, coincidentally, she just found out that she, uh, she has breast cancer for a second time. But anyway, this, uh, this woman, uh, her life story actually helped a lot of people understand and grasp the love of Christ. You know what happened to her? When she was a teenager, she had a diving accident, and so she became a quadriplegic uh, as a teenager. And that experience really shaped the way that she understood and grasped the love of Christ. And as she began to share about how the love of Christ uh, really saved her, affected her, uh, even in the midst of be- being a quadriplegic, 
what that does is that builds up the community and other people are now able to see the love of Christ through her eyes and they understand it and grasp it in a much more profound way. If we had uh, the elderly here, people who have walked uh, with the Lord for 40, 50 years and, that, and they have seen the depth of the love of Christ in a particular way, that person is going to be a great benefit to a community because they know the love of Christ in a particular way. If there's anybody here who has just become a believer and the love of Christ is new and they share about it and they have that passion and they're on fire for it, that's going to shape a community in a certain way and people in the community are going to remember, ah, yes, that is what the love of Christ ought to, have, ought to do to me today. You see, when you cut yourself off from community and when you don't really share or talk about the love of Christ in the context of community, I think what happens is you're going to struggle spiritually. At, at the, I guess at the worst. At the very best, you won't see the love of Christ to the degree that you ought to see it. You will be deprived of knowing the love of Christ in the way that you can know it outside of the context of community. Even though the cross is a singular event and whose, which the implication sends ripples throughout history and throughout time, throughout cosmic history, throughout the world's history, throughout our personal histories, It is such a magnificent and great thing to grasp. What does Paul say? The breadth, right? The breadth of the love of Christ. It reaches every tribe, every tongue, every nation. The length of the love of Christ goes on for centuries and goes on for all of time. The depth of the love of Christ is kind of like this infinite pit that you fall into and you think you've reached the bottom, but then there's always more to discover The height of the love of Christ means there is no greater pinnacle or no greater glory that you can experience. And when you get a taste of that glory, oh, what it does to us. That is the love of Christ. And when you take all of that together, this singular act of the cross, it is gruesome, it is violent, but it is brilliant, powerful, gracious, and filled with love at the same time. It is the clearest picture we get of the love of God And if we grasp it, if we comprehend it, if we know it in the way that we ought to know it, it's going to be like a meteor crashing into a lake, sending ripple effects throughout the water. It cannot not have an effect on every aspect of our lives. It has to affect how we view people. It has to affect how we view our time. It has to affect how we view what's uh, our priorities, what's valuable, what's worthy to us. And again, let me bring it back to this. Paul's prayer is not for people outside the church to know the love of Christ in such a way. Paul's prayer is for the church. It's for you. It's for me. It's for Good News Church. It's for the Ephesian church. It's for all churches. Church, we need to know the love of Christ in such a way. May the Spirit of God strengthen us so that we may know the love of Christ in this kind of way so that in the final analysis we would be a people who feel like we're full. Not empty, not starving, not hungry, not yearning for the next best thing, but people who have been filled and have so much overflowing that it is no problem to give of ourselves to others because we know what God has given to us. Let's pray together.